I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. You're on Team Human, Conscious Intervention in the Machine. This is our last best hope for peeps. We're doing a special Team Human Live, coming to you live from New York's Civic Hall. We have a special guest tonight, Shiban O'Connor from Medium, who's going to be uh, interrogating me on Team Human. And before she does, I thought I'd share a little bit about what's been going on for me in the last... 24 hours since the book was released. The thing that's different about this, the the reception of this book than any other is usually people either agree with me or disagree with me with the book, right? I'll write a book like Coercion that says that, oh, look what corporations are using increasingly coercive means to, you know, to manipulate people. And I'll do an interview with the Wall Street Journal and they'll say, of course they're not. Corporations are good and they're just trying to help creative disruption and all that. And people in the nation would say, yes, yes, you go tell them. With this book, it's not that people are disagreeing or agreeing. It's that they're saying either this is the most pessimistic dark story I have ever read in my life, or how could you be so hopeful, so unabashedly hopeful? And after a few talks with some friends of mine about about all this, I realized what the difference is between these people, because I meant Team Human as a hopeful book. We can do this. We can get ourselves out of this mess. All we need is teamwork and work together and all. But the people who can't see the hope in this book, dare I say it, are people who don't believe that human beings have souls. It's actually what it comes down to. And I realized that the, one of the most profoundly important messages of this book is the message I used to get every day as a little kid when I would watch Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. And he would say to me, 
you are okay just the way you are. You are special just the way you are. And most of us just think he's, you know, doing some boomer tripe. Oh, all kids are special, la, la, la. You know, it's some psychological thing. But no, what he was actually saying, at least to me, little baby media theorist, what he was saying to me was, you, Douglas, are not just your utility value. You are not just the inputs and outputs. You are not just the value that you can create for the market. You are not just the metrics that we have of your worth or net worth or the, the work that you've done, the, the, the mass over distance that you've pushed, but you're something else. There's something else going on here. And that's the thing that you came in with, the thing that was here before you even got here and why you matter. And I've been thinking a lot about why is it I keep saying that being human is a team sport? And it's because the only real way to experience your soul is with other people. That's the only way to do it. You know, it's part of why, not to get rabbinic, I know we were talking about the, 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 some Jewish talk I gave a long time ago, but you know, it's why the rabbis got so upset when they were going to take Torah and turn it from an oral tradition and write it down. Because now, wait a minute, people are just going to read this thing by themselves? They're not going to have the live transmission of Torah and stories with one another in the room? So they said, it's okay, we'll make a rule. We'll make a rule that you can only open the Torah if you've got 10 people there, a minion. That'll guarantee, don't worry, they'll be fine. But when we accept that human beings are only measurable in terms of our utility value, that's when we get really screwed up. That's when we start seeing evolution as this battle for the survival of the fittest individual, rather than the collaborative act it really is. Even just read your Darwin. Don't read the, the neoliberals. Don't read the libertarians. Read the actual Darwin. And for all his problems, he understands that evolution is the story of how species learn to collaborate. If human beings are the most advanced species, which I don't know that we are, but to the extent that we are the most advanced species, it's because we have the most advanced means of collaborating and communicating. The problem is, and we've gotten to witness this now in the last 20 years, what happens when we come up with a new way of communicating is that that means, that medium, that technology ends up getting turned against this collaborative ethos and tends to isolate us and atomize us and separate us instead. Right? Social media was the last one to do that, and it was, it was shocking to a lot of us. You know, after the dot-com boom, a lot of us thought, oh, yay, the Internet's free of business. It's going to be great and social and wonderful. You know, Blogger and Tumblr and even Friendster and Facebook. But, of course, what happened, you know, when they got over-invested, they became about how do we extract value from people rather than how do we help people connect with one another. So what we're experiencing now, what this book is about, what I am about, is a profound reversal of figure and ground. Instead of people using technology, technology is using people. That's what we do. We want to, want to play the spiritual game. What are algorithms? What really are they? We talked about that in, in this room last month. Algorithms are demons. It's the easiest way to understand what they are. They're these little things. We make them. But what are they? They're little things that are, that are trained 
to figure out our exploits as human, our vulnerabilities as humans, and to use those vulnerabilities in order to get us to act against our own and one another's best interests. And why do we have them? Because we've got to play people. Why do we have to play people? Because we've got to extract their data, their money, their time, whatever it is that's going to allow all these people to serve, I mean, and maybe I'm too Marxist about it, but right now, to serve capitalism. I mean, in capitalism, I'm sorry to say if it was only that easy, because capitalism is just a stand-in for something else. Right? But it's an easy way to, it's an easy one to point at. Right? The problem with technology development today is none of these technologies are disruptive. None of them. They love that word. None of them. The internet as an industry, it's what we call reactionary. It's the opposite of revolutionary. The internet industry is here to preserve the status quo of Wall Street, of capitalism, of investment. That's what it's for. And that status quo, unfortunately, is a, is a growth-based economic model. And if you're going to keep growing, you've got to find somewhere to expand to. And where are they expanding? They ran out of land. They ran out of air. Where are they expanding? In here. And that's why so many people are walking around like zombies. The technologies that we're using, the best way to understand them is like drugs. That's what they are. Each technology is a drug. I'm not saying it's bad. There's some great drugs. <laughs> but Timothy Leary's advice when people would take a drug, if you're, if you're trying to decide whether or not to take a drug, what Timothy Leary said to do is look into the eyes of someone who is on that drug and decide if that's a place you want to be. Right? So look into the eyes of someone on Facebook. Look into the eyes of someone on Google. Look into the eyes of someone on smartphone. And then decide, is that where I want to be? Maybe for a short period of time in order to get something done. But they're all drugs. And this is not, again, it's not a value judgment. Language is a drug. Language is a drug too. That's why if you go to a monastery, you're going to find a bunch of monks who are out there not speaking. They take like a 30-day speaking fast or a vow of silence for 30, for 30 days? Why are they doing that? Because, you know, we like to think, oh, because language is ego and it's all you. And it's like, no, that's a modern pop psychology view of it. They're doing it because they want to be off English for 30 days and see what that's like. They understand that English language is software. It has biases embedded in it. And the world on English is different than the world, however the world may be. The problem today, and the reason I wrote this book, the problem today with an entirely utilitarian view of humans is that it becomes really difficult to argue for keeping us around. I end up on these panels with singularity people, and one in particular who shall remain nameless just because, and he was making the case that evolution is the story of information's movement into uh, increasingly complex forms. So information evolved from you know, atoms to molecules to organelles to organisms to human beings to culture. And now our culture developed computers. And once they go quantum or whatever, and they're more complex than people, we should pass the evolutionary torch to the machines and recede into the background and stick around long enough to keep the lights on for our evolutionary successors. 
And he said, it's really okay to, to, to accept that we are a temporary thing. We're a temporary stage in this story. And I said, no, human beings are special and weird. You know, we, we have souls. We're, we're uh, unique. We can appreciate a David Lynch movie. You know, even if we don't understand what it is, we can still like it. What's that? Machines can't do that. And he said, oh, Rushkoff, you're just saying that because you're human. As if it was hubris. And that's when I said, okay, fine, guilty as charged. I'm on team human. And that's what set me on this journey. You know, and it feels strange to be in a world where one needs to argue for the right of humans to exist. And I understand we did some nasty things to the environment and to all the other species, you know, but we're still conscious. We can still change course. We can still realize that we are the stewards of nature. We're this weird conscious actor in the midst of this dance of nature. So we can make nature less cruel. We can bring ethics into, into, this, uh, uh, into this realm if we choose. You know, but if we don't, if we don't see humans as the source of intentionality, then we are kind of lost, and we're going to keep doing technology to humans. Now, I'm not here to say technology is bad. I'm not, I'm not here to try to reform technology. There's always people out there. I mean, God bless them. They have the humane technology movement, right, to make technology more humane. I love that, right? Humane technology. But... Once you're talking about humane technology, which to me sounds like you know, cage-free chickens, right? We're going to raise them more humanely on their way to the slaughter. The real problem with humane technology is the dynamic of it, is we're going to have technology treat people more humanely. It's still technology acting on us. Technologies with black boxes and algorithms behind is proprietary who's-its that we don't even know what they're doing. But the technology acting on us, and that's what I'm done with. Right? I'm here to promote human autonomy in a digital age. And human autonomy is something that doesn't happen alone. Human autonomy is something that we do together. If we're not doing it together, it's not human. It's individualistic, isolated, atomized, alone. It's, it's, when you're alone, you're basically your brainstem. Right? You can only activate the rest with other people. That's where, it, that's where our humanity happens. Human beings are a collective organism. Being human is a team sport. And it's not too late to put down our phones for 10 minutes a week. Just 10 minutes a week is all I ask. Put down your phone and be with someone for 10 minutes to start. It's a big challenge for a lot of us. 10 minutes a week and then see if you can... Uh, move it up and actually have a majority of your, your life and experience spent engaged with other people. All of a sudden, all these things that have, that have turned from, from ends into means become means to a very different end. Right? Your education is no longer about getting enough iPads in the classroom so kids can get jobs in the digital future. The classroom becomes a place, again, to reify learning as a social activity, to model the behavior of another human being in the room, to teach kids, and believe me, they can't do it anymore, to teach kids how to make eye contact. I teach in college every single year. There's more kids who have a special note from their therapist saying they don't have to stand in front of the room and give a presentation because they, they, they're 
psychologically unable to do that. That to me is serious. That's what the classroom is for. I don't care if they learn the stuff. The stuff I'm teaching is the excuse to teach. And once we get that, once we can put figure back in figure and ground back on ground, then we've begun the process of reasserting our humanity. I'm, I'm shocked and honored um, that, that my editor from, from Medium, uh, Shaban O'Connor, has, has agreed to come and sort of interlocute a bit. Um, Medium is the first place I've written other than Norton, of course, um, in a very, very first journalism I've done that I can remember where I actually felt like the publication and the editors are trying to make my writing better. I mean, they all edit, but usually what they're editing it for is to make it as much like clickbait as possible without looking like it and sacrifice whatever you need. Medium actually is trying to create a kind of a, almost a, a gated commons. I encourage you to spend, what is it, five bucks a month. And when you, you contribute five bucks a month, it's going to all the people who are writing, professional writers, amateur writers, we're all in there in a kind of a commons and sharing the pool of money between us based on sort of the response to different articles. It's a, it's a different model and there's a very different kind of support. And that's really why I, you're, you're such a great uh, member and enabler of, uh, of Team Human. That uh, Thanks so much. So, Shaban O'Connor. Um, so, so much of what I want to talk with you about, you sort of touched on in your opening um, sermon, let's call it yeah, that. Um, it really was. But yeah. I want to I unpack it um, mm -hmm. like a good journalist does and really talk about what the cost of a lot of this is. Mm. So um, at, the, at the very start of the book and in an excerpt that we ran on Medium, you do talk about this sort of bastardization of Darwin's theory, right? right. And... Uh, how it's been sort of co-opted by people who write business books and entrepreneurs and this sort of idea of like the reason we got here is because of this fundamental law of survival of the fittest and you sort of say that no actually there's a fundamental misunderstanding of what that law is can you talk about well give us a couple sentences about what that is you you did mention it in your early talk and then also like what what is the cost because i think in order to like really unpack team human we need to understand what we're losing well the the best evidence I found of, of evolution being a team sport was uh, when I read The Secret Life of Trees. He explains, I think it's a he, he explains it in one really eloquent section how you know, most of us were taught that you know, trees are competing for sunlight in the forest and some trees are trying to grow higher in order to get the sun and then the little ones are going to shrivel next to it. Remember all those lessons we got? None of that's true. It turns out that trees are connected through the soil through a network of mushrooms, of mycelia. And uh, uh, they share nutrients. So when a tree is tall and getting the sunlight, it actually shares its nutrients with the little trees next to it. And then when the winter comes and the tall tree loses its leaves, then the little evergreen tree then gives nutrients back to the big tree. And then they pay a fee. It's like a, almost like a, a Bitcoin service fee. Um, they pay a fee to the mushrooms for, uh, uh, for exchanging all this. And I'm like, well... So the forest is not some battle survival of the fittest competitive thing. It's actually this huge collaborative, cooperative 
act. And, you know, an, an example after example, as you read Darwin, you see, you know, the cow that wanders from the, from the herd to express its individuality ends up getting picked off by the lions. And uh, it, it's almost, you know, example after example. The, the problem, the, the, the liability of buying this uh, incorrect vision of Darwin or understanding of, of uh, evolution as competition between individuals is it starts to make people think about survival as uh, their ability to beat out and insulate themselves from the rest of humanity. Now, how am I going to get up into the penthouse? Or for the billionaires that I wrote about in that in that that viral story, Great it becomes piece. a fantasy of that the world is going to end. I have to make enough money to insulate myself from the reality I am creating by earning my money in this way. And it's, it's, it's an ass backwardsness. And it also, it makes everything less fun. It makes everything, uh, 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 so highly individualized and individuated. It's like, you know, you know, saran wrapped each piece of cheese. But, you know, you live that way. The only time you get wrapped like that is in the morgue. You know, and, and that's what we pay for is more distance from our neighbors, less sharing with our neighbors. And you look at the way our culture then treats sharing as if it's um, somehow, well, that's for the poor. You talk about sharing and collaboration and all of these things. These were the early promises of the internet, right? These were the early promises of this these these technologies that you're grappling with and have been grappling with for a very long time. And one of the things you get at in the book, and you've definitely talked about this other times too, is how did we get here? And so there is a sense, I think, perhaps not in this room. This is a self-selecting group of, of, of thoughtful people, people who think about these things. But certainly in the world at large, that we just kind of, it just, it's sort of random. We just sort of like ended up here. What's your answer to that? Like, what's your main, like, if you're talking to America, what, how did we get here? I mean, it's funny. I mean, speaking of good editors, I told this story in the book, which is a really short book. I told this story four times over the course of the book. And he was like, you know, maybe three or <laughs> two times is enough to tell this story. And it's like, I just kept coming back to it. Come on, back, back. Um, because it's the one that happened in my lifetime. You know, I could tell the Renaissance once. I could tell what happened to text once or, you know, what happened to central currency once. But the internet, oh, it was the one, you know, that was mine. What, what, what happened was, I mean, the way I like to say it is Netscape went public the day that Jerry Garcia died. Right? We lost the 60s. We lost the communal values at, at a moment. No, what happened was um, the, the, when the internet became part of, uh, when, it, when it kind of mixed with the optimistic California, Esalen, spiritual, whole earth subculture, um, for better or for worse, it became associated with human potential. And it seemed as if sort of the Esalen Maslow model of human potential as self-actualization would give way to a new understanding of human potential as collective actualization. You know, James Lovelock had just come up with the Gaia hypothesis, and we were thinking, well, human beings are kind of like the neurons in Gaia's brain, and we're going to use the internet to create a new collective 
awareness and consciousness and sensibility. And we were dreaming about the wildest potentials of the collective human imagination. So we started to think of the future as this this landscape that we would create together. It's part of why they hired acid heads and children to work in computer companies, because they're the only ones who are comfortable hallucinating reality. Then, and the easy way to say it is Wired Magazine came along, and the whole culture with it, and said, yes, something's happening in the future, and we've got these scenario planners who can help you figure out what future is going to happen so that you can bet on it appropriately. So the future went from sort of the digital future to stock futures. And we spent all of this time, energy, and money predicting what was going to happen rather than creating what could happen. And you see how disempowering that is. Again, it's like, I just want to know where, what number is going to come up at the end so I can bet. However dark it might be, even if it's a zombie apocalypse, just let me know and I'll bet on that. It's like, well, don't you want to maybe make it so it's not a zombie apocalypse? It's like, no, 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 just tell me what's going to happen. I want certainty, right? And if we're not really, and, and, and now that we know that that's the one I bet on, now let's make sure it happens. Let's put algorithms and mind control and whatever we can in Facebook and here to get the most probable future, the one that I have bet on. And that's really what did it. So once we were betting on the future rather than creating the future, once we saw the internet really as the poster child for the dying NASDAQ stock exchange, then the objective of any of these companies was to pivot away from helping human potential and towards 1,000x returns. So even a, a Twitter, we love Evan, even a Twitter was making $2 billion a year and that was considered an abject failure by Wall Street because it had peaked around $2 billion a year. And as I look at it, 140 character messaging app making $2 billion a year, winner. <laughs> Wall Street, loser, because it stopped at $2 billion because the point of the companies was no longer to deliver goods and services to people. It was to sell shares to investors. So again, the figure became the ground, the users became the product, and the whole thing um, reversed. And it turned out that we were doing it with some very powerful technologies. Right? So we took these industrial age ideals of growth and extraction and utilitarianism and applied them with digital steroids to a society that had no idea what was about to happen to it. And now we are living on this, this digital substrate. So when you, when you talk about that period of time, that shift from sort of optimism to, optimism to prospecting, mm -hmm. do you ascribe intent? Do you think the technologists who were working on this at the time, this is pre-Twitter, like, do you think they knew this was happening? Um, or did they just let it happen? Did they get ahead of themselves? How, like, because they're humans say, too. Yeah, so I would it say it was from lack of intent. Right. You know, it was, what happened was these kids... Um, who understood digital technology really well were completely oblivious to the fact that there was an operating system beneath the technologies that they were using, the operating system of corporate capitalism. So they think they're so disruptive. Oh, look at my new app. I made this thing. I'm going to be disruptive. What's the first thing they do? I'm going to go to daddy at Goldman Sachs right, and get you know, a, a $10 million and a giant valuation. I'm going to do whatever he says. So they ended up taking potentially disruptive technologies and surrendering them to Wall Street to do a very, uh, a very typical thing. Powerful. So um, they're not, but no, yeah. I, don't, I don't believe that these folks 
um, were evil. No. You know, I do think if you want to get biblical, that for some of the uh, the billionaires, I think their their hearts got hardened. Right? I think they do lose. The more you invest in this, the more powerless you become. Right, and then the harder it is for you to. Uh, to feel what's happening, to see the other people. You know, everyone starts to become a mark or something else, you know, or an enemy or someone who's going to, you know, raid my bunker. You write in the book, and you said earlier, um, we must stop optimizing human beings for technology and start optimizing technology for human beings. I'm curious what role you think the tech giants can actually play in this, um, if any role at all. The best role they could play would be to be the objects of disruption. Um, Say more. Well, I mean, you know, they were like disruptors, so it's now let's disrupt them. I mean, I, I love the idea. You know how much easier it would be to program Facebook today than it was back then? I mean, and there's some clones coming up. It's hard for people to really jump in there. It's like until you see people just like dying from instant messages or something, I don't know that they're going to leave so fast. It's just got so many. I thought it would be so Friendster temporary, like or could or something. Um, for a little old network. Which, which one? Uh, or, remember, or could, it was in uh, mostly South America, I think. It was a, another social network. It doesn't matter. Um, MySpace. Or MySpace. Oh, poor, poor, poor MySpace. Um, so it could, it could happen. But it's funny, both Facebook and Google, when they started, they both said that what's going to make them so great is that they're not going to take advertising. Even Google said that because their whole thing said, well, our search results would be all skewed. The whole thing would be awful if we took advertising, like Yahoo does. We're going to just be the people's the the people's algorithm, you until know. The they weren't. Until they weren't, you know. So I mean, what could they do? Uh, try to unwind. I mean, at this point, they're that big and they have the investors. All they could do, if I were the CEO of Google, is try to get um, turned into a public utility, you know, and do it before the shareholders kicked me out. Um, which, of course, they would do if they found out. I think that would be the best thing for either of them because they're so big. But then what other companies can do is see that, oh, look, if we get that hundred trillion, billion trillion big, we're going to get turned into a public utility. So maybe we don't really want to do that. Maybe we want to keep our company just, I'm going to be happy with 500 million. That's just good enough. You know, think, think small. You know, I think that'll happen next. Super interesting. You talk a lot about the very, how the very things that have brought us closer, um, the ability to speak, relate on the very sort of biological human level, and then the sort of technologies that have been created that have allowed us to sort of amplify those connections um, are, are breaking us down. They're breaking down human connections. And yet you are frequently still described, at least in the press, don't always trust what you read, as a techno-optimist. Are you, in fact, Douglas Rushkoff, a techno-optimist? If you're going to be an optimist today, you have to be a techno-optimist because we're living in a technologized world. You know, we're not going to get rid of it. You don't de-electrify a country. You don't de-internet or de-Facebook you know, or whatever it is, a world. I'm a techno-optimist in that I don't look at technology as a disease that we have to fight. I look at the human organism as something whose vitality is being threatened, but whose vitality we need to encourage. So I take an almost more homeopathic view that what we have to do is strengthen the cultural organism, strengthen our cultural immunity to the weaponized memes, you know, it enhance human health. And then, I mean, my God, could you imagine, we live in a world where we actually consider Facebook is a threat to us. What? That is a threat. I mean, I get it. 
Facebook, it's a freaking social network on a computer. It's a website. It's a website. So no, if people had some power, you know, at some internal uh, 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 flywheel of, that was moving it any, with any momentum at all, you're going to see a clip of a Covington kid facing off with a Native American and go, whatever, I wasn't there. I don't know what happened. This is some Facebook troll farm twit fest nightmare trying to get me sensations, trying to activate my brainstem and get me all... It's a joke. It's a joke. There's enough going on. There's, you want to see it? Go in the street. You can see a white kid looking at a black kid or something. You can find it in real life, you know, and actually do something about it and have feelings about it. Speaking of Facebook, I want to talk about algorithms. So you have some tough words in the book about algorithms. Um, if you talk to uh, companies that use them, they'll say that they exist to reduce friction, to increase convenience, to um, predict what you want and deliver you things that are meaningful to you. And you sort of say that they actually exist to train us to behave in a certain way. You have that very interesting anecdote about the woman who's considering going on a diet and then the, the, the role of the algorithm is to get her from 80% likely to like actually go on the diet to like 90% likely. Talk more about that. Right. I mean, so, you know, Facebook, the main function of Facebook is to use data from your past in order to write uh, algorithms and routines that get you to uh, uh, live more truly to the statistical bucket that they've put you in. And that's because if they're only 80% accurate, why not be 90, 95? What are we going to do with that pesky 20% who are not going on a diet the way we've predicted? We can either find out what they're really going to do or just make them go on a f***ing diet, right? <laughs> Behave. You know, so what we're actually doing with technology is trying to reduce that 20%. And that 20% in any, what's that number called, the 80-20 rule, the... Pareto principle, it's those 20% who have the new, novel, crazy, wonderful ideas. It's those 20% of people who are going to figure out how we can not destroy the rest of the topsoil on the planet in the next 60 years. It's that 20% who cure cancer. It's that 20% who find a way out of algorithmic hell. And what we're trying to do is to kill that 20% and turn them into the other ones because it'll increase our margins by another 10 or 20%. You know, but but so so that's when I see it as, as we're using algorithms to iron out human ingenuity, to iron out uh, uh, the stragglers. What, were the, what, what did Malcolm Gladwell call them? The, the outliers? Outlier, that's where, the, that's where the action is. It's on the edges and the fringes. It's, you know, but yeah, that's, what, that's what conservative um, social mores always do. The people on the edges of the city who talk to the ones in the other city, those weird ones and new ideas, get rid of them. Just stay between the two white lines. So, yeah, it's, so my problem with it is twofold. Is one, it's technology acting on people rather than people acting with technology. And two, it's technology acting on people in order to reduce our spontaneity, in order to reduce our weirdness, our originality, in order to get back to the soul idea, in order to get us not to act from the soul, to kill soul. They hate soul. They've always hated soul, unless they can sell it as a record. We don't like soul. So have you seen any signs from leaders, either thought leaders, leaders in the technology industry, regulators, I'd be curious to hear, uh, hear your thoughts on, um, who are taking seriously, and I mean really seriously, the idea of 
bringing human values to the technology that is absolutely pervasive, like the Fang companies. The it's okay if the answer is no. I mean, not a lot, <laughs> unfortunately, because I mean, they're really their their hearts really are hardened. They really are. I mean, that they they look at the way they most of them that I've spoken to compensate in their personal lives rather than in their business lives. So I'm doing all this horrible stuff, but my kid goes to Rudolf Steiner School. We have an organic goat share. And when I die, 80% of my billions are going to go, you know, with Buffett and the Gates Foundation to buying poison mosquito nets for kids in Africa that they're going to end up using to catch fish with and destroy their ponds. Oops. Um, you know, some techno-solutionist silliness. You know, you know that famous Gates story that they... they yeah. Oops. Um, so... No, for the most part, no. But on the other hand, there are, there's Jimmy Wells is out there banging on the best example of a collaborative uh, uh, free internet uh, utility that's out there. They got the kids in New Zealand at Lumio and in Spiral making uh, things. You got um, Trevor Schultz with the platform cooperative movement and uh, working with Nathan Schneider to help convince startups to be worker owned so that you you know you you pre-distribute the means of production rather than redistribute the spoils of capitalism. So I do see it um, pretty much everywhere I look, except in the the big companies that are so entrenched that are so they're they're putting moats around them i mean look at the apple headquarters what is that that's a fort that's a strange inwardly turned that an actual fort it is it's solipsism in in the in architecture but you know they are protecting my privacy right they're going to even fight the fbi to keep me private so i mean if you got the money you can buy your privacy it seems you know People are predicting that in uh, the 2020 race, antitrust is going to become a thing. What's your take on that? That'd be so cool. I mean, I wonder. I mean, I would bet you fewer people know what the word antitrust means than know whether or not a Supreme Court justice has to be uh, approved by a majority or two-thirds of the Senate. I mean, antitrust. Um, that'd be great. But that sort of, I do think people understand the too-big-to-fail death grip that we get into. And the idea, if we let Facebook fail, what happens to the old ladies' pensions and stuff? What happens to the S&P? You know, uh, so people kind of, uh, kind of get that. But um, that would be cool. I mean, but it would be like who? Like Elizabeth Warren or someone yeah, would bring totally, that up. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And Trump would she go already like, has. what? Yeah. <laughs> what is that? <laughs> what you know? is antitrust? Yeah. What is antitrust? I'm for trust. Hey, how can you be antitrust? <laughs> Do you predict? Hey, it's trust. Oh my God, you're right. <laughs> Great. Hope you didn't listen to that. We'll edit it out. I don't want to give many ideas. Um, I have some questions from my team, so I told them that I was going oh, to be cool. talking with you. Um, this was the one where uh, someone said it, and then everyone else was like, "I really want to know the answer to that one too." Uh, what company or entity keeps you up at night? No, you know, no company in particular keeps me up at night. Sometimes so someone like Peter Thiel will keep me up at night because I want to know. This sounds terrible, but I kind of want to know that he's not happy. It's like, if, if you be like this and go around the world like this, at least you should be unhappy. And, and I, you know what I mean? At least, you know, and if he's not, then where's, there's just no justice, you know? There's no justice. But no, none of them. You know, they all seem so, um, so pathetic to me. 
Um, you know, the one that would keep me up, I guess, a Monsanto. Okay. That's the one that bothers me the most because they're they're uh, uh, they're not just uh, impacting the digital space and all. They're like I'm not that. I mean, and, and of course, Facebook and Google are destroying the environment as we speak. We've got one of the greatest scholars of uh, of, of non green media here, Rick Maxwell, who taught me a lot about just all the life cycle of a friggin' iPhone or uh, the the amount of juice that we use. Uh, just accessing a an Amazon cloud bit is just. Uh, I mean, and the, you see the impact on the faces of little dead children all over the place. But um, an actual company, it's Monsanto. And it's because I feel like, uh, uh, and I've actually had some a slight disagreement with my, my book editor on this, but I feel like, you know, that, that they're, they're having us use certain products that then require us to use other products. So we use Roundup, and they get us using Roundup. And once you're using that, then you have to use this fertilizer. Once you're using that fertilizer, you're going to have to use this GMO seed. And once you use that GMO seed, you're going to have to use this styrofoam topsoil thing. And it just, uh, I feel like they, and the other company that keeps me up at night a little bit, and this is, I shouldn't say it, um, is WeWork. I feel like WeWork is taking the the digital the lean digital resilience scrum whatever silicon valley sensibility that works so well in technology and trying to apply it to the real world so it's as if we work is the company that thinks of real life as another vertical and i don't i, I understand they're trying to figure out how many steps does it take for me to get from here to my desk and that and minimize that and save that. But uh, when you have people using those technologies and biases to design reality, um, it gets a little, a little tricky. WeWork is an interesting example. The response to the piece that just came out about that sort of looked at the the pilots that they're doing about exactly mm -hmm. that, sensors on the couches and you know, the, the the joke that went viral like a couple of days ago about how they used AI to figure out they were running out of coffee, they need more coffee instead of just like checking if they had run out of coffee. Um, it is really interesting how uncomfortable it makes people when it's in a physical space that you operate in as opposed to a digital space where it feels a little bit remote, but it's obviously not. Right. I mean, um, and that's sort of what's going on in Arizona, too. Right. You know, is that when people see their world being changed to increase the reach envelope of a robot, reach envelope is sort of it's how far it can go and what it can do. It's like that's not handicap access. That's something else. That's, you know, it's like what, what people had to endure when they, when they turned over the roads due to the public roads to private uh, vehicles and they yelled at, they teased people who got hit by cars as jaywalkers. Um, that's, that's, I feel like that's what will happen if we let these companies migrate back onto terra firma. We humans have the home field advantage here on planet Earth. And I think we can, we can, uh, uh, we can mount a formidable defense. Let's talk about how. Let's talk about how. That wasn't my next question, but I, I want to be mindful of leaving time to talk to the room, too. So what, for those who have not finished your book, um, how do we do it? How do humans, how, what's, the, what's, the, what's the ideal expression of team human? How do we get the power back? Well, the thing I'm resisting is giving a few great industrial age, one-size-fits-all solutions. Because in reality, the solutions are going to be as, as diverse as all humans. You know, so 
what, what I can say is that the kinds of ideas that will make our world better and more truly resilient are the sorts of ideas that emerge when you have a bunch of people conspiring together in real space. Now, the word conspire literally means breathe together. You get 10 or 12 people in a room deciding we want to do something about this problem or that. They're going to come up with a such a local, particular solution. And it's the particular solutions that are so grounded in the particular place with the particular people. I'm not talking about race or nation or any of that stuff. I'm just talking about it's 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 genuinely diverse uh, but so so the, the principles really would be come up with these ideas as locally as you can with real people and then let them be modeled by other places talk about them online show what you've done put your plans up like lumio does but um to to, to start with that i mean is really is my best advice it's great advice um it's interesting so back to my team's questions um it's very natural, but I'm actually realizing now what the through line is, is everyone wants to know what Douglas does. So it was like, what keeps Douglas up at night? The next question is, what services or platforms does he abstain from? Where does he buy his milk? Where does he buy his toilet paper? Obviously, the question is, do you use Amazon Prime? Um, uh, but it's, it, these are the things that people want to understand. I think, I, I yeah. think the most important way to answer that is, I live a compromised life. I do. I mean, I'm not going to apologize for the air that I breathe, um, but yeah, I teach at Queens College. The big problem with teaching at Queens College is the only way I can get there in a reasonable amount of time, I can get there in under two hours, is if I drive a car. So now I'm driving a car to get to Queens College, puffing out all this smoke behind me, even though I'm like, oh, so I can get a, a digital car or whatever they are, an electric car, but what's the carbon footprint of one of those batteries, and who are they sending into the caves of you know of of uh, of the congo to get the rare earth metals to stick in that thing and i mean so no i live a compromised life and i'm trying my best to do a little bit better eat less red meat um drive cars less i want to after this um uh, uh book tour i want to seriously look at you just no more plane flights just no more you know so i can't do a talk in california or if i do i go out once every couple of years on a train you know, what would that be like? And go talk there. I mean, but this flying all over the planet and all that, I mean, we're not entitled to, we're not entitled to do that. We're just not. Uh, one of the parts in the, so I came across this term yesterday, uh, neurobiologically expensive. It's a ridiculous term, but it's basically, it was a description of multitasking and it says mm. multitasking is neurobiologically expensive. But I intuit, like I inherently was just like, yeah, no, it, it is actually neurobiologically expensive. And you do talk about multitasking in the book and how it's not possible. Like right. we, we, we say that we're multitasking, but really it's like we're trying to emulate machines and machines can actually multitask. It's one of the beautiful things about a computer, but humans cannot. Um, I'm curious in your own life, in your own work, I mean, you are a prolific author, 20 books, you have a weekly podcast, you have a column, you do speaking, yada, yada. What, if any, um, sort of personal changes have you made to the way that you are I guess a are you just wired this way or b like what have you done to change to get rid of distraction to um focus your work to to live a less neurobiologically expensive life <laughs> I mean I'm so compelled to try to increase the possibility of species survival 
over the next decade that it it animates me. You know, I I feel like I can make some small incremental difference. I can I can increase the probability of us making it. And as long as I think that, and I've got a daughter, um, you know, I'm going to get up in the morning and 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 do what I can do. That said, I am on the edge of burnout, you know, and I've learned to ride it, you know, and not, I haven't fallen over the edge, but I'm on the edge of burnout now. And that's part of why I'm realizing I've been living at scale for too long and not even Malcolm Gladwell scale. I mean, you know what I mean? I'm just at scale, but I'm still, I am, I am tied to these industrial age distributed products in a universe where authors are accessible to do customer service to everyone who's even seen your book, much less uh, uh, read it. Great you know, point. So I'm getting, and now it's a little bit down, I'm getting between six and 800 emails a day, most of whom, m- most of which want actual answers. You know, and a lot of them, yeah, screw them. They're like, hi, I got assigned your book, Media Virus, in my 10th grade uh, uh, sociology class. Can you tell me what it's about? Um, read the book you moron um but you know or you know and 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 now some of it's amplified because you write an article in cnn that talks about something and you'll get there's sort of these uh 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 i don't know what you call them sort of red state uh, like phone trees or something where you know you'll get like 70 emails from people that you think maybe this they all found out at the same place that they're all supposed to write me right now and tell me what a horrible person I am wow. all, you know that those will happen but most of it is all these people who really want stuff and uh, so the, the what I'm doing now to remain as prolific but not burn out is to you know to do team human which the idea except for this one um, team human is to give a platform to other people so say, I've done all this work. I don't want to throw it out and just say goodbye, you know, mic drop, um, however fun that would be. And I would die anyway because I wouldn't have enough money. But um, the way, instead of doing mic drop, the thing to do is to say, okay, I've done all this. I've said a lot. I've had the microphone. I've had the, the eyeballs of people for a, a whole long time. Um, so now what I should do is use the momentum to show lots of different individuals who are each promoting uh, the humanism that I'm that I'm uh, I'm after in all these different ways. So every week, have another person celebrate what they're doing. Let them talk and share what they're what they're what they're about. And then try to also, if I can, model a style of conversation that's more um, uh, more human than this sort of you know NPR like interrogation thing that goes on now. I hope I've brought that here tonight. Yeah. Um, let's go to the room. Yeah. Um, we have. We don't have another other mic, do we? No. Okay. Project. I will project. Yeah. I will use my stage voice. Yeah. So um, I was going to ask this anyway, but since you brought up your daughter, who I think is about the same age as my daughter, how do you look at that generation and see what they're doing different than what we do? Is there hope there? This sounds awful. I don't believe in generations. These people are so different. You know, there's freaks and goths and greasers and jocks and nerds in every generation. You know, there's righties and lefties and young Republicans and young progressives. There's the 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 kids from, from Covington and there's the kids from Parkland, you know, and the kids from South Park, you know. So it's so hard for to to generalize. You know, I th- I think I mentioned I, I am concerned at the the deterioration 
of social ability in the kids I'm teaching. So even in the four or five years I've been doing it, I've noticed a kind of a steady decline in, in basic proximity social functioning. That's of concern to me. But I will tell you, I am uh, less concerned about the kinds of things we used to be concerned about with kids using social media and all that. I think kids are getting a little bit inured to it. You know, my daughter doesn't consider this like the the they teach the kids that everything is bullying of one sort or another bullying is this big word and all that and my daughter doesn't see i don't think what's going on out there is bullying she sees it as drama and drama is just the way the algos and the apps and the snapchats and the streaks are just stirring up drama you know and i think they're they're coming to understand it's a it's a kind of a social weather you know, and the social weather is precipitated by these technological environments. And the more attuned they get to social weather, it'll be, and I've talked to her about this, like when you go to Florida and you go around in the shallow water and you feel here's a cold spot and here's a warm spot, as they get attuned to that, I think they will migrate off media that create that spiky drama feeling. So I got kind of faith in their ability to... to perceive some of this. So your solution, which is to have this this, this or you know, a lot of stuff happening at the edge, can you point to a historical example of that ever working, scaling into sort of a better future? Well, scale is a tricky word, again, right? Um, I can find a lot of moments. I mean, one of them would be the the... Late Middle Ages, I talk about that a lot. After the, um, after the Crusades, when the guys came back and the trade routes had opened up, and we took the, uh, the Moorish Bazaar, and we interpreted it as the market, and we developed currencies that were optimized for the velocity of money and transaction that were almost worthless, but they helped people trade. Um, we had the commons, uh, rather than uh, uh, an enclosed, privatized um, uh, uh, landscape. And... It was the beginning of a flourishing that it would have been interesting to see what had happened had the monarchs not shut it down, had they not created chartered monopolies to make local business illegal, had they not created central currencies and made local currencies illegal, had they not had that renaissance and that uh, 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 elevation of the, of the strident individual over that collective sensibility that was emerging. And that's because people just left to do their thing. They start being collectivist. They start working like a team. It's what the reason why Nash's uh, uh, um, game theory experiments didn't work. Whenever they did prisoner's dilemma to these the secretaries in the company, they would do the collaborative solution. It's like, we well, are not supposed to do that. And say, oh, well, they did it because they're women is what they said. They did it because they're this or that. It's an exception. Um, that no, that people do left to our own devices. We do, we do collaborate. So no, I think, um, it sounds off, I think love scales. I really think it does. Um, and and the, 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 we, we, we've, we've seen it. Um, and there's pockets, you know, there's pockets. They're trying. There's the credit union movement. There's the co-op movement. There's, uh, uh, the permaculture movement. There, the what was it? Um, what's his name? Adam Brock's book on on applying permaculture to culture. 
um, is is really interesting. I feel like they're they're places spawning for that. And the other good news is that if everything breaks, then it will have to spawn. You know, if everything breaks, then we go back to a world made by hand, right? Then then um, then we start to learn how to uh, how to actually get along again. Hi. So uh, I want to ask two questions, actually. Um, so first of all, you kind of talked about this earlier, but um, in choosing to write a book, the format of a book, I'm curious, what power does the, do these ideas have in the format of a book today? Has that changed over time? Sort of why why a book to communicate these ideas, and how might this book help further Team Human? And then sort of on another uh, point, I'm curious about um, uh, the role of governing institutions in driving forth this team human concept. So we've talked a lot about private companies, private sector, but when talking about driving things for the public good, what role do these institutions we've set up to do that have? Um, the simple answer to why a book is because I'm a writer. You know, that's, that's what I have to offer is that. So I figured... Um, it's a different kind of book than my other books. My other books are all about something. This book is a thing in itself. This is, it's not a, it's not, I mean, there's information in it, I guess, but it's not to get that. It's the experience of the book itself. And that's why I kind of think of it as a last book, certainly as a, a last book of this whole section of my life, because it's like, okay, now, rather than telling it, I'm going to do it. So this book does that. It's a it's an experience that I'm meaning for people to have. It's 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 more like literature than it is some nonfiction book. So that was a uh, uh, part of why I wanted to do that too to see. Um, I also wanted to create an object, an artifact to Im sort of embody this thing. I wanted a, a tag, a sign, a signal, a a, a, a flag. A, some object value, some kind of a sigil, magic, distributed totem of that person's on the subway, they're on Team Human, they're this. Just to create the, the secret handshake thing of we're on Team Human, we're on Team Human, until everybody's in the wing, everybody's in the club. Um, so there was that. As far as uh, uh, kind of government, I mean, I had a great conversation with Fred Turner, who should be writing on Medium if he's not. He just did a big Harper's piece that I thought, huh. Bring him in the fold. Send him my way. Um, yeah. Um, he, he, we were talking, and, and I think we underestimate the power of the institutions that we set up. The local land use board in your town, the board of education, the kinds of civic opportunities there are, they, they already exist. Everyone says to me, oh, Team Human, we got to restart this. We got to invent a social organism that will help people create you know, new communities. It's like, we have those. We have those. It's just nobody goes to those meetings because it's only like a couple of weird people there who have nowhere else to go on a Thursday night, you know, but the village town hall or something. But those are open opportunities. It's sort of these blank spaces. Like, remember public access television, just those dead air? And it's like, there's, you could be making TV. And nobody wanted to do it. I was so shocked, except Robin Bird, you know, and what was that? Um, <laughs> You know, it's like, that's what TV, that's what you're going to do with this, this power. So I feel like um, I, I'm interested to see people get involved in their local governments. And I've got, I'm doing an event in March with um, um, State Assemblyman uh, Ron Kim, you know, who's another guy. He's a bottom-up, economic resilience, local currencies. Let's, you know, mix it up and distribute things. So there, there are people in government now who are really willing to be 
engaged. You know, we need this, we need that, and we just look at it, we look at it so generic, so scaled, that we think that the way we can make an impact is by what president we vote for. And that's the least of it. You know, the way we can make an in impact is right in your, in your own little district, changing the way this street works, getting a bike lane, you know, getting a school path, getting your, your gym fixed, getting the, the, you know, the handicap access to the bathroom at the local this, you know. It's like there, there's such great things we can do to rehumanize the environment in which we live. And the institutions are there. We're just right now, we we're, they're anchored in our head as the enemy, you know, and, and they're not. Do you, Should we do, do one that? last one? Let's do one. In the way in the you back, think, yeah. whoever that is. The way I'll answer that is this. In the Renaissance, the way that the will of the elite was inflicted on the people was through law. Today, the way the will of the elite is inflicted on people is through code. There are a lot of great people who are trying to figure out how can we code things better? Sweet game designers who now want to build echo villages in Holland or something. How can we code it better? How can we blockchain it better? Or get a ledger with the perfect code and all that. And it's a little bit more Christian than it is Jewish for me to say it. But you're going to get lost in the code. The only way to really make the world a better place is by feeling the love for everybody else and the code will follow. Okay, thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to Team Human. Team Human is entirely listener supported and you can become a patron of the show at teamhuman.fm by clicking on support. You can also go there for my schedule of upcoming appearances and Team Human book talks. Team Human is produced by Stephen Bartolome. Our engineer was Josh Chapdelin. Our associate producer is Luke Robert Mason. You can find our show and my writing at Medium. You've been listening to Team Human, conscious intervention in the machine.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.